Timothy chapter 1. You guys need to enjoy these little breaks I give from uh, 2 Thessalonians because I don't give money, all right? We're in 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Let's pray. Father, may this be a blessed day for the moms here. Thank you for their endless toil, for their children, for the grandmoms, their endless toil, for their grandchildren. And uh, we pray uh, in faith, Lord, that the labor is not in vain, that you would uh, return it uh, tenfold, uh, 50-fold, 100-fold of spiritual fruit. And God, we pray for those ladies um, who want to be moms, that uh, you would bless their bodies and let them bear children, Lord, that they would be uh, fruitful uh, and multiply. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God ever with us, um, constantly, day by day, night by night, hour by hour, minute by minute, you walk with us each step of the way. Thank you for our moms and the blessing that they are to each one of us. We pray this with the authority in Jesus. Amen. All right, is being a mom a full-time job? Yes. Well, according to Welch's Grape Juice Company, it's not. <laughs> they did a study interviewing moms and found it was equivalent to two and a half full-time jobs. And as they did the study, the average mom started at 6.23 in the morning and ended the day at 8.31 p.m. at night with only about an hour of free time in between. And they were asked, how do you make it through this grueling schedule? And so um, some of their answers, a constant coffee supply. <laughs> Being able to nap. How do you make it through this grueling schedule? Putting on an effective, angry voice. <laughs> How do you make it through the grueling schedule? Netflix. I wasn't sure if that was for the kids or for the mom, but uh, I mean, it helps probably both. It helps them make it through. Wet wipes. I'm assuming that's for the kids. Toys, iPads, uh, and finally, wine. <laughs> And I, I'm not sure if that's the drinking or that's the complaining, but <laughs> that's how they make it through the schedule. It's a lot of work. Uh, I have three points today for mothers and grandmothers. The first point I have, 
And really, I'm, I'm going to just focus on verse 5 in 2 Timothy. That is uh, the primary text that I'm pulling from today. And my first point is this. When it comes to our children, get them in the faith. And let me explain what I mean by that. Think about that. Paul is writing to encourage his young disciple Timothy and to instruct him in various church issues. But what's interesting is we get a short genealogy of Timothy here. Notice who is mentioned. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So who's mentioned? His grandma and his mom. He gives them a shout out. Why? Because they were instrumental in getting Timothy in the faith. Instrumental. Any first generation Christians here? Like your parents weren't saved, but you are? Is there any first generation? Okay. So your parents weren't saved, but you are. You're that first generation, and I want to encourage you all, like look to the future. Because you're kind of in the, in the role here of, of Lois, the grandma. Like, she's that first-generation, first-generation believer passing it on. But guess what? You have a Timothy, okay? You have a Timothy coming down the line, and, and they're going to need Jesus. Your kids' kids. Any second-generation Christians here? Your parents knew Jesus, but their parents didn't. Any second-generation Okay, your parents, they looked to the future, and they passed on the faith to you. That alone gives you all the reason to show gratitude to them all your days. They passed on the faith. They played the role here of Eunice. It was passed to them, and they're wanting to pass it on now to you. What about third-generation Christians? Any third-generation you know, your grandparents looked to the future. They looked to the future. So Lois imparted the faith to her daughter Eunice, and they both imparted the faith to Timothy. Notice the word back in verse 5, dwelt. I think the NIV says lived. It is not the idea. So it says, I am sure dwells in you. That's what he's talking about, Timothy. But he says, it first dwelt in your grandma Lois and in your mom Eunice. And that word Dwelt is not the idea of, of passive or prosaic or pro forma faith, but rather deep and alive, a lasting faith that resided in both of them. They were captivated with the gospel. They had a faith that was alive, and that faith helped make Timothy alive. So it's forward thinking. It balances keeping the focus on the here and now with with the dishes and the diapers and the lunchtime, the, the here and now, which is necessary, but it keeps an eye to the future. Not forgetting the long-term goal. The long-term goal is not to change the diapers tomorrow, but that has to happen. That's not the long-term goal. The long-term goal is instructing them and raising them to be the Timothys. So don't forget the long-term goal. It is easy when we are constantly in the thick of all those different, what seemed like mundane or meaningless tasks, 
that we have to do every single day, day after day after day, it's easy to forget the long-term goal. You have to remind yourself of that. Remember the long-term goal. Look at Malachi. Keep your place in 2 Timothy because we'll be coming back. But look at Malachi chapter 2. It's right before Matthew. In verse 10 he says, Malachi chapter 2, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Okay, so the issue is, they're coming before the Lord with tears. It looks, it looks real. And, and he says, uh, I no longer regard your offering. And they're like, why? He goes on, verse 14, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. So he's rebuking the men here for being faithless to their wife. You have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? And here we get it. One of the purposes of marriage. What was the one God seeking in that union? Godly offspring. Godly offspring. That's one of the purposes of marriage. So, this is God's work. We totally recognize that. And we understand that. And at some point, each of our kids have to decide if their parents' God will be their God. And they have to make that decision. But guess what? We can put them in the best position to make that decision for Jesus. We can train them. We can pray for them. We can pray with them. We can prod gently. But here's the thing. They need to know the truth. And they need to see the truth lived out. Listen, the greatest witness to the truth of the gospel, okay, not the greatest witness of the gospel, but the greatest witness to the truth of the gospel, because they still need the words to hear the gospel, but the witness to the veracity of the gospel is your daily living before them. They need to see what you profess line up with your actions. How you act, how you respond, how you interact with them. And when you mess up, they need to see how you make it right. They need to see you repent. They need to see you apologize. They need to see you humble yourself. So notice the continuation of faith that goes from Lois to Eunice to Timothy. And go back to 2 Timothy. And notice, notice what Paul, one chapter later, commands Timothy to do. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, 2 Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men... 
who will be able to teach others also. I mean, when you think about it, this is what Lois and Eunice really did. They put this into practice. Lois passed it on to Eunice, who passed it on to Timothy. How many people, or generations, you could say, in verse 2 here, are, are involved in this process? It goes from Paul, who then is giving it to Timothy, what you've heard from me. So, so Timothy, what you've heard from me, Paul, from Paul to Timothy. And then who is it going to? Faithful men. It's all right, you can say it. Faithful men, and then what? Who will be able to teach others also. So th there's like four, four generations, so to speak. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others. Paul saw the importance of passing on the faith, not just to the next generation, but to the generation after it and the generation after that. You're training your kids, yes, but in a very real sense, even if you don't have grandkids yet, you're training your grandkids. Because your kids will pass something on to their kids. And their kids will pass something on to their kids. And I remember, and I remind myself of this, and one of my early disciplers emphasized to me after I had, had shared uh, at a hardware store with someone, uh, a dad, and he's like, just remember, you, when you share with someone, you're not just sharing with one person. You're sharing with an entire family. You know, because he might go home that night and say, yeah, there's this, this guy at the hardware store telling me about Jesus. And then, boom, it, that message is getting spread, inadvertently or advertently. Uh, maybe that dad gets saved, and then guess what? What is he going to do? He's going to share that message with the rest of his family. I mean, that's what you see in Acts a whole lot, right? Guy gets saved, and then who gets saved after? The household, Right? Do we need to do what Welch's was talking about and get some of y'all that coffee or something? <laughs> so Paul saw the importance of passing on the faith. Um, if this is the case, then we'll never hit an age where we're not passing on the faith. Amen? So whether the title is mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, you're passing on the faith. Listen, the next generation depends on you. And so does the one after it. We've been tasked to pass on the faith. So get them in the faith. Second, get them in the word. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look what Paul is commanding Timothy in verse 14 of chapter 3. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from, what does your version say? Childhood. See, I'll get you involved some way. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. From when did he do it? From childhood. Well, I mean, did, did, did Timothy just uh, stumble across the scriptures on his own? No. Well, then how has he known it? since childhood, from his mom and from his grandma. Hold your place there. Look at Acts chapter 16. In 
In verse 1, Acts 16, it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. So, <clears throat> if his mom is Jewish, guess what at least one of, uh, one of, of her parents were? Jewish. Okay? So, very likely, uh, even though it doesn't explicitly say it, Lo- Lois was very likely Jewish as well. And what did Lois and Eunice do? They grounded him in the word. And here's what's amazing. Timothy's dad likely wasn't saved. Notice what it says there. Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Right? Now, if they're both believers, he probably would have said a Jewish woman who was a believer as well as his father, who was Greek. No. So we get the idea here that his dad wasn't saved. And he's not mentioned in 2 Timothy, which would really not make sense according to Paul's theology, not to mention the dad if he was influential in Timothy's spiritual life, right? So he's not mentioned in 2 Timothy in regards to Timothy's spiritual upbringing. We see the distinguishment here in Acts 16. And then further, Timothy uh, wasn't circumcised. In any Jewish male, uh, his dad would have made sure that would have occurred. Uh, especially before the gospel came to that region. So Lois and Eunice educated Timothy Timothy spiritually. And here's the amazing thing. Apparently, uh, there was no synagogue in Lystra where they're all from. So where did they go? I don't know, but they, they, they just couldn't walk down the street. They had to go to some extreme to get Timothy grounded in the scriptures because there was no local synagogue where they were from to be a part of. It wasn't just easy. They couldn't just walk down the street and go to the synagogue. They had to make some concerted effort of some type. But guess what? They did it. They grounded him in the word. Somehow, some way, they got him in the Old Testament scriptures. They found a way. Guess what? Find a way to get your kids in the word. Too many resources today for them not to be. Where do our children rank today? You know, where do they rank? Our society decided 49 years ago where children rank in the list of important things. We wrote it into law. We wrote it into law with Roe v. Wade. That's where our society says they rank. And brothers and sisters, it looks like we are on the precipice of overturning this vile and heinous law. But a society that doesn't value innocent human life makes a statement to all about its value of all children. One article said, talking about motherhood, Children rank way below college, below world travel for sure, below the ability to go out at night at your leisure, below honing your body at the gym, below any job you may have or hope to get, below everything. Children are the last thing you should ever spend your time on. She was bemoaning the fact that that is the way our society is. Listen, if you grew up in this culture, which would be all of us, if, we, if you grew up in this culture, it is very hard to get a biblical perspective on motherhood. 
to think like a Christian woman about your life, about your children, about children in general? How much have we listened to partial truths and half-lies? We must recognize them, we must reject them, and, and toss them in the Kidron Valley with nothing ever to do with them again. We want biblical truth. Our kids are too precious not to do this. I know some of you are thinking like, wow, man, he's really kind of going at it on Mother's Day. I looked back at like my last four or five sermons and, and they were kind of fluffy, okay? <clears throat> There's nothing wrong with fluffy, especially on Mother's Day, but about every four or five years I'm going to be a little bit more, a little bit more uh, direct and blunt on some things on Mother's Day because I love you. <laughs> Truth. Okay, our kids are, are, are too precious not to do this. Educationally, let me just say this. Um, I don't understand, this, this is just me, but this is also me speaking as a pastor, so a pastor believer. Um, I don't understand why we leave our kids' educational path up to them. I've had many parents tell me, we're going to let our kid decide if he wants to go to public, private, or homeschool. Um, let me just ask you, are you that neutral to education that you're going to leave such a major decision up to your kids? I mean, do you really think that they're wiser to make that decision than you are, especially at that age? That doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, my family, we've done classical conversations, Trinity Christian Academy, St. Charles Christian Home Educators, co-op, we've straight up homeschooled with no outside help. Like, we've gone across the spectrum, at least in homeschooling. Um, but here's the thing. We've done what's best for our kids based on what we thought, not what they thought. I mean, think about it. Most kids, if you ask them, hey, there's this really challenging class over here, and we think it'd be great for you to do. Uh, what, do you, what, do you say, what do you think? I mean, you think they're going to be, oh, yeah, count me in. I mean, there's like one or two out there that would do that. But the vast majority, no. They're going to do like we expect kids to do, and they're going to take the path of least resistance. Why are they going to do that? Because in our flesh, that's what we do. We take the, the easiest path. Listen, mothers, fathers, you are in charge of your kids' education. Do what you think is best for them, not what they think. Do what you say the word commanding you to do, not what they think. And you are charged by God to give them a godly biblical education. So whatever path you choose, make sure that it has that at the foundation, godly and biblical. You've heard this term probably recently, maybe for a couple years, deconstruction. It's like a new fad. It'll fade out. I'll be giving a sermon in five to ten years, and I'll use that term, and people won't even know about it. But it's the new fad. It, it's, the re, it's the emergent church repackaged, and some of you are like, the emergent church? Yep, that's the old fad. Okay? You missed out on it. That was 10 to 20 years ago. There's nothing new under the sun. Oh, seriously. But here's the definition of deconstruct. It is to analyze a text or a linguistic or conceptual system, typically in order to expose its hidden internal assumptions and contradictions and subvert its apparent significance or unity. Did you catch that last part? Subvert its apparent significance or unity. 
So people like talk about, you know, deconstructing. I'm deconstructing. Uh, I'm deconstructing. And they'll say, I'm deconstructing my faith. They're not deconstructing their faith, really. The truth is they're deconstructing the faith. That's what it really boils down to. What's wrong with Christianity? That's the question they're asking. Not what areas might be wrong in my biblical worldview. Not where do I need to grow spiritually. They put God on the witness stand. As C.S. Lewis uh, famously said it, they put God in the dock. That was the little thing in, in England where the witness would be placed for questioning. So they put God on the witness stand and they question him. It's like Job questioning God. Except when, when God rebukes them, unlike Job, they don't repent. They keep on in their foolhardiness. So the emergent church 10 to 20 years ago was like, how can we be the cool, hip church on the block and not say anything that might hurt people's feelings or offend them. It was, it was like they wanted to be liberal without saying it. But it was the generation that had grown up in the 80s and 90s, and they wanted to look really cool. Listen, don't try and adopt the language of the culture so that you can fit in. It never works. Even woke. Everyone wanted to be woke when it first came out. A pastor wrote a book on, on the woke church. I'm sure he regrets writing that book. <laughs> I'm sure. But now it's deconstruction. It's, it, here's the thing. It's really a synonym, let's just be honest, for deconverting. That's really what it is. Um, and, and if you just think about it, I'm deconstructing my faith. Is there anything positive to that? I mean, when you think about it, when the Bible talks about different things, what are we, what are we supposed to, like, when we talk about getting rid of stuff, it's like putting off the old man, tearing down strongholds. When you think about the positive, like it's like, oh, putting on the new man, putting on the armor of God. So one, one uh, writer for Christianity Today, um, she had a definition of uh, deconstruction, and, and you can always leave it to Christianity Today to, to muddy the waters more than make it clear. Um, she said, Deconstruction, by which I mean the struggle to correct or deepen naive belief, is a significant part of learning theology. Christians should engage in the task to move beyond simplistic conceptions to belief in a God who is vaster than they can comprehend. Folks, that's, that's not deconstruction. That's just called sanctification. Okay? I mean, that's sanctification, growing more like Christ in areas where we're erring in our theology, correcting them, informing and shaping them. The problem with deconstruction, as one theologian said, is, is she said that's because the way the word is most often used in, in the deconstruction movement has little to do with objective truth and everything to do with tearing down whatever doctrine someone believes is morally wrong. She went on, deconstruction is not about getting your theology right. The world itself is built upon Excuse me, the word itself is built upon postmodernism and carries the baggage of moral relativism. The idea is like, do what's right for you. You know? So you don't like the Bible addressing, you know, uh, marriage between a man and a woman? Okay, just get rid of that. Like, deconstruct that. That is antithetical to the teaching of the Bible. Now, if your neighbor uh, calls you up and was like, hey, can you come... Um, uh, check out my deck and help me and make sure you think it's like real sound 
and you go over there, and you, you get up on his deck, and, and you're looking it over with him, and, and over on this side, there's like a couple spindles that are, are, are loose, and over here, there's like a rotted board on the floor, and, and maybe the handrail needs to be replaced, and, 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 and you point that out to him, and, and he's like, well, what do you suggest I do? And you're like, just, just wreck the whole thing. Just deconstruct it completely. No, really? Like, if you, if you have a couple problem areas, like, you would fix those areas. Not just tear down the whole deck. I mean, that's kind of, that, that is the extent to which they're suggesting people go. No, you fix, you fix the bad boards. You, you refasten the spindles. And what we want to do, and why I'm addressing this, is because things like that, we want to help prepare our kids for the world that awaits them. The world they're already walking into. I remember one of my kids when he was younger, we were talking about uh, God creating the world, and we're having this little conversation, and I was like, well, some people believe that we came from monkeys, and he was like five or six at the time, and he's like, monkeys? He's like, how could anyone think we came from monkeys? Never had to use the term evolution or anything like that, right? But that was his first introduction, that there's a different worldview out there, and this is what the worldview is. By the way, uh, there's, a, there's a Christian organization out there, quotes, Christian organization, um, whose aim and intent is to uh, get theistic evolution really spread throughout the churches uh, in all forms and fashions. That, that's their primary goal. Guess what they say is their biggest hurdle. No joke. Homeschool moms. Not kidding. Not kidding. They say the homeschool moms, they, they get to them too early. So by the time the organization gets there, they've already been grounded, and they know what's wrong with evolution. And they know what's right with creation. Go homeschool moms. So get them in the Word, and then finally, get them in the church. What's the three key words? that encapsulate the vision of this church? Belong, flourish, go. Y'all really do need that coffee. So think about belong for a second. Belong to the body of Christ. There's two aspects to that, if you remember. You're belonging, most importantly, to the body of Christ because you are a true believer. God has regenerated your soul. So you are a part of the body of Christ, period. But then there's the aspect of belonging to the local body of Christ. Listen, get them to the church. This is part of belong, belong to the body of Christ. They need to be connected to the church. They need to love it and be a part of it. Listen, they need community just like you do. Jude 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith That was once for all delivered to the saints. I mean, that's what we're doing with our children, contending for the faith. Who was it given to? To the saints. Where do you find the saints at? Hopefully in church. Hopefully they're out there too. But hopefully right here. So put them in a context where they hear the truth at home, reiterated right here. How many times have my, uh, I won't say my kids, but how many times have kids come home and they'll say something like, oh, guess what I learned at youth group tonight? 
and they, they tell you some truth, and, and it's, it's kind of revolutionary for them, and you're like, man, I, I probably said that to them at least a thousand times. <laughs> but you know what? That's okay. Because they needed it reiterated by someone else for it to get through, okay? They're not going to get 100% of what we, we already know that, okay? They're not going to get 100% of it, okay? They need it reiterated by someone else for it to get through. When I led uh, junior high ministry for many, many years, many of those kids had been uh, come up through a homeschool family, very godly families, uh, homeschool, private school, and, and public school, but very godly families. But guess what? You talked with some of them. Guess when it finally started to click for them? When they started coming to the youth group and hearing it re-emphasized by someone outside the home. The parents had done a great job laying the foundation, but they needed to, to see, hey, there's other people who actually believe this too. Reinforcement. So we're coming along. We're coming along to complement what the parents are doing. Not supplement, but to complement. Okay? That the, the kids, you talk about the spheres, right? The family, the church. Uh, the civil authority. I mean, who are the kids given to? Well, y'all the ones that had them, it goes to the family. But that doesn't mean the church doesn't play a role. So we complement. That's why we have a Sunday school, right? That's where, you know, they're back there learning age-appropriate material in, in an age-appropriate way. And, and by the way, we use some excellent curriculum. And we took a long time uh, to find that. And it's, and it's, it's great stuff. It's just not like... Uh, cotton candy stuff, okay? I mean, we're, we're, they're getting some serious um, biblical truths. But praise God that the church is the church and does complement what's happening at home. So get them in the church. Moms, I understand <clears throat> uh, motherhood is a full-time job, and it takes a lot of work. Here's the thing. It must take priority over anything else outside the home. That's not popular today, but it's biblical. Your kids are priority number one. Titus goes and he's talking and he's instructing uh, the men, the younger men, the older men. He's talking about uh, the women and he gives the command for them to be workers at home. Now he doesn't say only workers at home, but he does say workers at home. Why does he say that? Because he's emphasizing something. All these spiritual qualities he's talking about they need to have. One of them in this list of spiritual, you know what, we, need, we just need to look at it so you get the point fully. Titus chapter 2. Notice what he says in verse 1, Titus chapter 2. Are you all there? But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And now what's Paul going to do? He's going to teach Titus sound doctrine. And he's going to actually break it down real nicely, uh, categorically, according to older men, younger men, older women. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women... Likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, 
working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And then it goes on, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And then he gives them his own command. Okay, but notice this, this, this kind of like running statement for the older women. They're training the younger women, verse 4. They're being self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. All those things. Paul's putting all those things together. Some of those are talking about the fruit of the Spirit. But here's the thing, and, and one, one thing that I've wrestled with, how can you yank one of those out without potentially yanking the others out? Either this verse is entirely true or it's not true at all. Either these ladies need to do all these things or they don't need to do any of them. So one of the things is working at home. Okay? Again, not only working at home, but working at home. What does he mean? You're a homemaker. You're making the home. You're taking care of those kids. You're keeping the house. Your first task and primary task is family life. That can, that, that's back to what I said earlier about the half-truths and the full lies that we've been told by the culture. Because that's a hard pill for some people to swallow. Your first task and primary task is family life. That doesn't sit well with some people. Well, it sits well with the Bible. So that's back to sanctification and reorienting our thoughts to what God's Word says. It's interesting when you think about it. <clears throat> they just had the NFL draft. I don't really watch it, even though I love football. Uh, maybe because my Rams never have picks to, to make any picks with in the draft. Um, if you're a football fan, you understand that. But it's interesting when you're watching the NFL draft, and um, the guy gets up there, and sometimes he gets an opportunity to speak, right? And what, what happens a lot of times? Like, who are they thinking while they're up there? Like, I couldn't have made it without my mom, okay? Dads rarely get a shout out. It's mom or it's even sometimes grandma, right? These big, huge men that I wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley, okay? <clears throat> I'd be like, whoa. <clears throat> I'd get my running shoes on. But these big, huge men in, in front of this national audience are thanking their mom for the impact they had on them, all right? Moms play a huge role. It can't be understated. Okay, they play a huge role. That's not, uh, <clears throat> that's not something that is echoed much today. But it's huge. They have a huge impact on their children. For some, it will be years and years and years before you see the full impact. Okay, there will be toil, there will be labor, there will be sweat, there will be hard work. Um, and that's just one day. <laughs> because there's going to be more toils and labors and sweat and hard work. It is worth it. It is worth it. Keep your eyes on that long-term goal. Okay? We're making Timothys. We're making Timothys. Here's what it says in Psalm 55. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. All the struggles, failures, shortcomings, we've all got them. Moms feel it, maybe the most at times. Like God has you, okay? Yes, 
He's got you. You can do what he says right here, Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord and just be done with that. We're all, we all fall short. We all fall way short of the glory of God and we all fall way short in different areas of our lives. Yes, we could always be better moms and dads. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of us need to stop beating ourselves up about that. That's not from the Lord. That's from Satan. So cast any burdens regarding your children onto him. He will see fit to take care of it. As long as your children have breath, there is hope. All right? took me about 18 years, 18 years, all right, before the Lord got a hold of me. And a lot of prayers, a lot of uh, sweat, toil, labor on my mom's part. My dad would freely admit that he did not play much role in my upbringing, okay? And my mom, she was like, she was like that Lois or that Eunice, okay? But it took 18 years. While your kids still have breath, there's hope. Pray, 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 pray to that end. Pray to that end. God is very gracious. He knows what he's doing. Continue to trust him. Continue to seek him. Continue to pray for your kids and your grandkids. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray for all the children and grandchildren represented here. And some of them are young and don't know you. Please save them at an early age. Some of them are, are older and don't know you. We pray that you would redeem them, God. Do whatever it takes for them to come to saving faith in you. May the moms and the dads continue to pray in faith, Lord. Continue your work in their kids and their grandkids. May the gospel reverberate in their households and their kids and grandkids see it and see it clearly. Thank you, Lord, that you are a good and gracious God, that you can give us the strength to be the moms and dads. Not perfectly, but you can give us the strength to be the moms and dads you want us to be for your glory. Amen.